The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Live from the NASDAQ market today, overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grosso. The S&P 500 closing at a fresh all-time high, boosted by the promise of China trade progress and strong earnings. But that second part leads us right to Alphabet, which ding that trend. The tech giant missing profit expectation shares are down right now by more than 1%. Uh, we've got full team coverage to break down these results. Fast Money friend Gene Munster is in Minneapolis to give us his take on the quarter, but we kicked things off with Josh Lipton, live in San Francisco with the details on the results. Josh. So, Melissa, I just spoke to Aaron Kessler from Raymond James just to get a quick take from the street. Uh, his point, strong results, he said, uh, Melissa, on the top line, beat consensus there. Google properties revenue, so that's the properties the company owns and operates, search, YouTube, 19% to $28.7 billion. That was above what Kessler was looking for. Uh, operating expenses, though, were higher than expected, he said, at $13.7 billion. Now, there I did have the chance to speak with Alphabet CFO Ruth Porat. She called this a noisy quarter in her, her words. She said there were some unusual items. Um, she pointed out, too, $545 million expense related to a legal settlement in France. Also called out some unrealized losses tied to certain venture investments, though she declined to say uh, which ones. Uh, switching gears a bit, I asked her about competition. Listen, we just heard from Amazon. Their burgeoning online ad business is growing very strongly. I asked her how much of a threat she thought Amazon was. Um, Ruth Porat seeming to suggest that really the online ad market continues to grow here. In other words, um, her point being that there doesn't have to be one winner. It's not winner take all. Um, As for about Waymo too as well, Interestingly, you did have the team at Morgan Stanley. They recently cut their, their valuation there by 40%, in part because they said the industry is just moving toward commercialization slower than expected. Um, I asked Ruth Porat whether commercialization of these self-driving cars, at least is it, is it on track with your own internal expectations? Um, she seemed to suggest to me, listen, um, we're going to be prudent, we're going to be responsible and cautious, um, that it's a long, long-term opportunity, which they're going to continue to shoot for, remain committed, she said, to providing the best experience for users. And finally, Melissa, um, Google, like other big tech giants, certainly under increasing regulatory threat, as well as lawmakers. I asked her specifically about Senator Warren, uh, Democratic presidential candidate, has called for breaking up Google, has said Google, like others, is just too big. They stifle innovation and competition. I asked Ruth Pratt, what does she think Senator Warren gets wrong? And she told me, listen, uh, we have consistently shown that our business, in fact, is designed to operate to serve customers. We, in fact, she says, expand choice, we lower price, and we create competition. 
question. Guys, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco. So we got the stock down more than 1%. Keep in mind, in today's session, the stock hit a record high. Um, Dan, what did you make of this quarter, especially as a lot of these are sort of one-off items? Yeah, I think the one-off items, that's what the CFO kind of spoke to, the mm-hmm. fact that they are just not something that you can model out going forward. I just make, you know, one point here is that obviously Amazon last week, the headline looked really bad. That stock was trading down 7% in the aftermarket. The fact that this thing is basically unchanged, I think investors are taking it to heat. You know, the, the growth in their own properties is really good. I mean, here's a company where I know that Tim will speak to the valuation where you're seeing a downshift, though, in EPS growth year over year for 2019 and expected in 2020, but you're still seeing sales growth at 20%. So on a PE2 growth, it's going to start to look expensive. The last time we saw it nearing yep. two was 2013, and the stock had a down year in 2014. So it might be getting rich on some of these metrics, especially when you think about regulatory and you think about competition in the cloud and some of these other areas. Right. And so I, I would want to bring up that I, I think it, you know, I, I could see this at roughly 18 and a half times. I think it's too cheap for all the drivers they have. But I, I agree with what you're saying. And there's certainly risks to the company. Um, by the way, I love Ruth Porat. I, I think slowly but surely she's bringing more transparency. When she talks about you know, some of the sloppiness of, of at least the quarter of the modeling out, she's someone that really you listen to. And she's someone that you don't take this as a, as a smoke screen. I think she's bringing a lot of transparency. Uh, and as we get more into the capital market side of what they do with $120 billion in cash, I think you listen to that. But again, if you look at Google sites, XFX, you know, FX neutral, um, around 20% is what, is what I think you want to see. Remember, if we're looking at the bottom line on Google, this is not what we've tended to look at in the past. I think we still want to see the top line. The fact that this is an OPEX-heavy number doesn't really bother me at all. I think these are great numbers. 26% off the June lows to into earnings. Well, you know, what do you want? I think this, this well, is just a, a breath of, you know. And your point off. on the operating expenses, right, those are investments to get growth. So you kind of have to say, all right, this is one quarter where the company invested some money so that their, their business model can continue to grow. And if you look at it, you know, the thesis isn't broken on this. You look at their ad search revenues. Those are still up. That thesis hasn't broken. Other properties doing well. That thesis hasn't broken. So if you can look past, and I think the market will look past this one quarter of investment, then I think you see the stock break to and the positive. It, 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 to Dan's point, it has already. It's only down 1%. Yeah. It's still above all its moving averages. You would think that the positioning going into this print was extremely negative. I think it's a buy coming off this print for everything that these guys had said. I'm unhappy that there was a miss, though. But that, that's the only concern. What, what is the difference between uh, Google, or Alphabet, I should say, uh, having an OPEX-heavy number with margins crimped because of it uh, versus an Amazon. Amazon or another company? I mean, why is it, why is, uh, why so is it okay that they do this here and we look through from, it? Because this is one quarter, whereas I view Amazon as there's going to be multiple quarters of investment. So when, when Bezos tells you we're going to invest for the next year, you can then model out and say, you know what, it's not going to look like what it used to. This is just one quarter. Market will look past it. Well, it's interesting. I don't know why Google is up 2.5% today going into this print today after it had such a big run. I think one of the reasons why is there's apparently some secret discussion about investing in fulfillment and logistics and, and suddenly getting into a broader business model. At least these are some headlines that were out there in addition to the Fitbit story, but I don't think that's the reason why people get excited on a Fitbit acquisition. Um, so they could be investing into broader uh, you know, ways to get involved in, in some of the same businesses as Amazon. And I don't, think the, mar- I don't think the market is saying that it's okay. or any, any, I think the positioning was the issue. People were overwhelmingly negative due to antitrust going into this print versus Amazon. Mm-hmm. 
Dan, what's your take on Yeah, so here's, let's, let's look at the MAGA complex, the Microsoft, the Amazon, the Google, and the, the Apple. The it's now a complex? Just, yeah, it is a complex. complex. I mean, but these are all these, these, nice these hovering around $1 nice trillion dollars in market cap. And, and Microsoft broke out today, but not really convincingly. It has been in a three, four-month range here. Amazon is kind of stuck in the mud, never got back to its prior highs. Here you are. It's very interesting to me. I think a lot of investors were looking to play for that breakout in Alphabet to new all-time highs. We know that two quarters ago it traded 1300 and then went all the way down to that level Steve was talking about in early June. That was a 20% peak to trough decline. So Made it all the way back. Is, so, there a, is it too early for a would you rather? Because I feel like Dan set up. No, a, no, no. A I'm just saying that, that, that it's interesting that the, the that the S&P 500 exactly. made a new all-time high. Microsoft is, in you know, and Apple have obviously run into this sort of thing. Microsoft not convincingly so. Apple later this week, I think we're going to have a really interesting test. I think that shows test. us that the, the market's changing its stripes, right? People are underinvested in cyclicals. They're moving into that. You you bought my, you bought your MAGA complex because there was revenue growth, and that was the only place that you could find growth, right, in a slow growth environment. So now that we get trade headlines, now that we get some of this uncertainty out of the way, people are starting to bet that, all right, we're going to have economic growth. Whether we're right or not, I don't know. All right. For more reaction to Alphabet's results, let's bring in Loop Ventures founder, Fast Money friend, Gene Munster. Gene, great to see you again. What did you make of this quarter? Solid quarter. Another reminder that Google is, in fact, the oxygen of the Internet. 22% revenue growth. That compares to 22% in the previous quarter. This is adjusting for FX. Uh, Surprisingly, they have grown their revenue in the 20 to 24% range now over 17 consecutive quarters. And to put that into perspective, if you look at Facebook, uh, 17 quarters ago, it was growing up in the mid-50%, and now it's growing at 25%. And so that is the definition. Google, in the case, is the definition of define the law of large numbers. And I think that that theme about being the oxygen of the Internet also plays through with where the stock is at today. And effectively, we're close to all-time highs. This is uh, a $900 billion market cap, and I think that uh, it was... Uh, a solid quarter. One other piece that really jumped out at me was the paid click number. So that is the, uh, or excuse me, the, the clicks, uh, how, how uh, uh, the year-over-year growth in clicks was up 18%, a slight deceleration from the mid-20% last quarter. But the, the, the cost per click, or what they get paid on each click, was down only 2%. It was down 11% in the previous quarter. If they ever get that intersection where both paid clicks are growing and they're making actually growing uh, profitability or growing uh, price per click year over year, mm-hmm. if they can get that, I think you're going to see a nirvana on the stock. In terms of monetizing other, other platforms, Gene, I mean, how does, how does Alphabet keep up that, that growth streak at that magnitude um, if the areas for monetization uh, could be sort of capped or reined in by regulators, and I'm talking about YouTube primarily. So that's the big question here is the regulatory piece, and it's one that they uh, have a, a kind of a, a standard response to, which is that they've dealt with regulatory environments in the past and they've continued to navigate them ultimately is that that will weigh on the multiple. I think that Google's a great story to own. Let's see what happens with the earnings call here tonight. But ultimately, it's a great story to own. But what you said in the regulatory environment, we have uh, a quite a, a, a supercharged political environment that is going to go. The easiest target here is Google. Uh, we talk about YouTube. We talk about maps and search and how they tie those together. Uh, Google has uh, uh, over 40 products, consumer-facing products, that they tie together. And ultimately, I think that we're a long way away from getting to the bottom of that. And it's more 
probably ultimately headline risk, but that will, I think, continue to needle at the stock's multiple over the next year. Hey, Gene, it's Tim. Can we talk a little bit about cloud and how these guys have nudged themselves right in the middle of Amazon and Microsoft or somewhere in that group, certainly the uh, multi-elemental part of the platform that has people uh, and and a very sticky user base involved and and what that does to your multiple and talk about, you know, kind of a blended multiple here as well. So their cloud business, they don't break it out, but it's in the other revenue or the non-ad revenue. And that was it was probably up 35 percent. Uh, year over year. That is uh, effectively a slight deceleration from last quarter for Google Cloud. It was the exact same growth that AWS had in the quarter that they uh, just reported. And so think of them as essentially maintaining market share in a, in a bigger market, uh, in a growing market. In terms of the, the, the concept of some of the parts versus the total, when I think about the Google story, and my, my, my uh, thought on large cap has been evolving toward this, is to kind of put it all together and see what that ultimately drives in terms of revenue growth. In the case of Google, it's just been remarkable. We talked about the revenue growth before. And so uh, let me try to just quick uh, put one final piece to it. I think you can look at a story like Google and think of this as the information oxygen of the Internet. And I think it should trade like a consumer-stable company in the mid-20 multiple range, which effectively it's trading at right now. Uh, I think you look at another company like Apple and what they're doing around services and devices and being a consumer staple around that. I think that should also trade at kind of that mid uh, Coca-Cola-like multiple. It's currently in the high teens. And so when I think of the sum of parts question, Tim, it's more about uh, kind of looking at it all together. I don't actually carve out, I'm not answering your question, don't actually carve out uh, Google Cloud. You did, you did very well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gene, we're going to check in with you a little bit later on as the conference call is getting underway. Um, so we'll see you later. And just last Friday, we should remind you, our chart master was eyeing Google for a breakout to new highs. Well, he's back. Carter's back. He's over at the Plasma to tell us what to expect from Alphabet now. Carter. Well, it looks like that breakout is going to be deferred by a day or two, which is to say we're not getting it, but I think we will. The key number here, at least by my work, would be the following. One, two six, four, 30. That's where the stock closed on Friday. So if one went into the weekend and owned the stock and one has done nothing today and is living through this right now, we can, of course, see that after plunging as low as 1230, the stock is trading at 1275, meaning if and as it opens here tomorrow, one is up from where one was just on Friday last week. So in terms of the breakout, it's just going to be deferred. It's not going to break out tomorrow, but the key is that these levels are deadly precise, and often you have to contend with a prior high before exceeding it, and ultimately, of course, I think Google will exceed it. Apple has broken out. Um, big stocks like a J.P. Morgan or a Nike, ultimately this one uh, will as well. In terms of how precise this is, and this speaks to the importance not of the charts that I'm showing you, but charts in general. Is it random that this high in July was 1-2 spot 9-1 and this is 1-2 spot 9-6 and this is 1-2 spot 9-6? Of course not. People look at 52-week highs, algorithms hunt them down, and then there is momentum. If and as you break out, you break out in a big way. One of the things about a breakout is there's no one who's unhappy once it's making new all-time highs, unless you're short, which represents perspective more buying as people have to cover. So the setup is this, the setup is this, the setup is this. It all suggests that while it is going to be deferred tomorrow, it is what's uh, going to happen for Google. In terms of the market overall, just because it is a big day, this day here 
was the highest weekly RSI reading ever recorded in the history of the S&P. That includes 1929, 1987, and the dot-com peak in 2000. And if you draw the internal trend line since that day, every time we have come up against this line, we have backed away. And since that peak, stocks have underperformed cash, underperformed bonds, and underperformed gold. We are right up against that level again, and earnings are out of the way. I don't quite see what the catalyst is to get us above that line. I think, once again, we'll struggle right there. You know, Carter should come on over. I think he's, got, on a, over, he's Carter. got a lot to talk about. Will's going to bring the chair in. A lot in. to talk about. Yeah, lots of questions for Carter. Uh-huh. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Will. What's going on? Welcome. Um, you know, will will just, your view of you the know, S- treats? There's nothing to eat. No, I told Sorry, you. We don't, by the way, we're, we're, we're not having a nut and fruit. I mean, we're we have thing. a nut and fruit bag Maybe now. <laughs> some um, super fruits for you. So, in, in terms of your view on the S and P 500, will any of that change based on this deferred breakout of Google or Al, uh, Apple's earnings later on this right, week, so or any of the other big earnings? What's interesting is if you think about, there's latent potential and then there's exploitation of potential. Right, a stock sitting at a breakout juncture represents potential. Even as it breaks out. You've exploited some of that potential. So J.P. Morgan represented potential. It has broken out. Nike, it has broken out. Apple, it has broken out. And others have not. Netflix, Amazon. But once they're out of the way in terms of earnings, what is the potential here to press us to big new highs? It would be, have to be a further spike in cyclicals, which a lot of people are making that bet. But I think they've come a long way. Or it would have to be other breakout candidates carrying the load. And as you go through the earnings period, there are fewer and fewer stocks in a position to break out because we've heard from so many of them. So I think you get to that line and you back away from that line just as we've done repeatedly. So, Carter, I, I could draw the similarities to the S&P over the same thing, sort of a, lead, a, a tag along to what Melissa just said, on, the, on Google stock. So every time we got to a certain level, backed off. Every time we get to that certain level in the S&P, backed off. The charts are similar, not the same. Why one is more likely to break well, out versus the other? One is making incremental new highs. That's an ascending or internal trend line of the S&P. The Google is flat tops at a common level. So Google's made no progress. Where the S&P is making slight new highs, which kind of draws capital in, makes it think it's okay. But again, if a risk asset is underperforming gold, cash, and bonds for two years, the bull would say that's the opportunity. It's taken so long and nothing's happened. The bear would say this is what a topping process is like. So to talk about the S&P, so, mm-hmm. you know, here we are, that October 1st, 2018 high, we're about 3.5% above that now, and it's the end of October 2019. So you just mentioned incremental highs. All of those highs that we've had over the last year have been above that 2018 high. Does that set up very bullish to you? I mean, the longer that we've had so this What you base- need is if you take the exact same day and you no. look at the New York Stock Exchange deposit, the mid-cap deposit, the Russell 2000, the transports, the banks, none has exceeded that high. So you have that bifurcation or divergence with so much money in a few big names. And for the most part, they've done well. Apple's done well, Google's done well. But now Amazon's a little bit of a struggle, Netflix a little bit of a struggle, so it's case by case. But what we do know is that if you take the broadest aggregate of all, we can, we can end it with this, right? That the MSCI All Country World Index, $70 trillion, twice the S&P, is still well, well below it where it was in that fateful Friday, January 26, 2018, almost two years ago. Carter, thank you. We'll see you a little bit later on in the show. Carter Braxtonworth. Coming up, Beyond Meat, tanking after earnings. We'll break down the highlights and look ahead to the stock's lockup expiration tomorrow. Plus, one market bull is on watch for a pullback ahead of this week's Fed decision. He'll tell us what's got him so worried. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this.
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Beyond Meat falling hard in the after-hour session. This is actually off the after-hour session lows. Let's get to Leslie Picker at headquarters with more on this. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, that stock was down as much as... 11% in the aftermarket today. Even as the company reported its first ever quarter of net income, the plant-based meat maker also beat on the top and bottom lines and raised its full-year guidance. But investors, as you can see, they're now down more than 7%. They're already looking ahead to another big event tomorrow when Beyond Meat's lockup expires. That will release nearly 49 million shares, or about 81% of those outstanding, to be eligible for sale in the market. Now, while not all investors will sell tomorrow. Some traders are embracing the windfall of share supply that will be hitting the market. And it's something actually that Executive Chair Seth Goldman addressed on the call that's currently ongoing while noting that he thinks the company is actually in a good position long term. This week also marks the end of the lockup period related to our IPO, which will permit the sale of pre-IPO shares by some of our longest standing supporters. While we recognize short-term reactions to these milestones are often marked by heightened uncertainty, we believe that Beyond Meat is in a stronger position today than at any other time in its history. Our transition to a public company has positioned Beyond Meat well to be able to capitalize on the substantial growth opportunities that lie ahead of us. And we sincerely thank our pre-IPO investors. So currently, executives are discussing the various brand partnerships they have with companies like Tim Hortons and how long the tests will last in the various markets before a broader rollout. Now, despite the recent pressure on Beyond Meat's stock, it still remains the top-performing IPO of the year. But, Melissa, the newest public listing was actually Virgin Galactic, whose stock began trading publicly today. Sir Richard Branson's space tourism company listed on the NYSE after merging with Chamath Palihapitiya's special purpose acquisition vehicle. Those shares rose initially, but actually closed down a third of 1% today. Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Um, so Beyond Meat, the CEO on the conference call, talked about the relationship with McDonald's and the Tim PLT, Hort- Tim Hortons, etc. So all of these relationships he's very positive on, and yet... Here we are. Well, he should be. I mean, McDonald's is a great partner. The question is, at what point does McDonald's need to be? Is this a brand that McDonald's has to have, or is it a brand that McDonald's will create their own version of? Um, because that's what McDonald's likes to do. I, you know, but um, they talk about Tim Hortons, inconsequential. They've talked about their ability to meet the demand, and so there's some questions of whether uh, if they've hockey sticked too quickly and they can actually be set up. They're going to certainly have to increase their expenses. That's something that would be concerning to people. But it, it shines a bright light on where valuations at some point just don't make sense. And, and I think that's what this is, because there wasn't any new news today uh, in terms of the lockup or illuminating anything in, in terms of the strategic partnerships are fine. They're exciting. And the company's done a great job. But was the 239 high back in July, was it a cult high? Was it about a social stock? Or was it about, because if you look at it, we've all talked about it on, on this desk, that it's not actually healthier for you. So it's not about health. It's about a social conscious movement that we're making. So if it was about health or it was about just strictly fundamentals, 
I'd rather go with a Tyson. It's up 53% year to date. That's a competitive market. They'll be in that market as well. I think social conscious is putting a nice fad. I would, I would categorize this as sort of a, a fad stock. I yeah, mean, we've seen a lot of stock market manias in the last five, six years. Remember the 3D printing stocks. Remember uh, net security stocks. Remember wearables, Fitbit, and all that sort of stuff. We've seen those things, and they defy gravity, and then they go the other way, too. And I'll just make one point. You know, on Friday's show, we were talking about this name in front of the lockup, and I made the point that they sold originally 11 million shares in their IPO at 25, mm-hmm. and then there was a secondary 3.75 um, at 160. I was incorrect by saying the company sold shares. That would have been brilliant to put that cash on their balance sheet. But it was selling shareholders. And so when you think about what this lockup means this week, you might have seen some people sell at those levels up at 160. And Lock that's likely to sell somewhere in the 90s or, you know, uh, you know, after these results that looked pretty good. Yeah. By the way, all those companies that you mentioned, it doesn't mean that they're not viable businesses of or industries. Just it was a stock market mania. Exactly. 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 Yeah. For more Beyond Meat, head on over to CNBC.com. Plus, tune in to Squawk Box tomorrow for the company's CEO first on CNBC. That's at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. LVMH's legendary deal-making CEO is at it again. But will he be able to put the sparkle back into Tiffany's business? And later... On the one-year anniversary of the first 737 MAX crash, Boeing CEO is in the hot seat on Capitol Hill Tuesday. We'll take a look at how options traders are betting he'll do. All that and more when Fast Money continues. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The S&P 500 seeing its first record high since July 26, the milestone coming just a day before the Fed meeting. BTIG's chief equity and derivative strategist Julian Emanuel is following the action. Julian, great to have you back. Great to be here. Um, you think the Fed is going to cut. You changed your mind. We, we do. We do. Yeah. Look, if we've figured something out over the last year, the Fed does not like to disappoint the markets when the markets are so heavily skewed. And the odds on the board are now over 90 percent of a 25 basis point rate cut. That having been said, we think they'll take the opportunity to deliver what we'd call a hawkish cut. Mm. Uh, Essentially, look, we've cut three times. The economy is going to grow at 2 percent, give or take. The jobs market is is very strong. And let's wait and see, you know, how the three cuts filter in through the economy. We know these things work with a lag and the stock market's at an all time high. And we have potentially positive geopolitical catalysts the next several months. It's a good time to hit the pause button. Do you think that a hawkish cut, won't that be just as bad as no cut and saying data dependent, we leave things open? 
If it's painted the right way, not necessarily. Do we think the market could pull back if that message is delivered? Absolutely. But unlike the other pullbacks of the last couple of years, we'd be buying the whole way down rather than letting the dust settle. Because basically the other thing that the Fed's doing and doing quite well is controlling liquidity through you know, the money market mechanism and letting the balance sheet expand. Don't call it QE. They don't want to call it QE. But the fact is, is that the balance sheet expansion, if you look at the last two years with all these volatility spikes that we had and brushing up against, you know, 3,000 plus and not getting through, it's because the balance sheet has contracted. They've gone sort of hand in hand. And now we're approaching a time of greater liquidity. So, Julie, I'm curious, where do you stand then on this, quote unquote, mid-cycle adjustment? It sounds like you're more leaning towards that this cut was a mid-cycle adjustment or the first cut was a mid-cycle adjustment. Well, they're not going to come out and say it specifically because the fact is, again, you know, though we do think there's going to be some sort of deal signed with China and we do think Brexit will resolve favorably, they may not. So so they're still going to be in risk management mode, but they're going to step back and say, look, we need deterioration or we need adverse developments to get more aggressive. And look, you may see more dissents. You had two dissents last time. Maybe you'll see a third. Who knows? So you'd buy all the way down because of the increased liquidity that the Fed is putting out there. What's your target then for next year let's well, say so anyway. so so what we have said all along about this year and this goes back to january you sound defensive at, at, <laughs> at, <laughs> well our year end 2019 target is 3000 right we have said all along going back to 2450 in january that if we were wrong it's because the market was going to be blow through our target we don't think it's necessarily going to occur this year but looking out into the first half of next year a number like 3250 is entirely possible. That represents uh, the average multiple on trailing earnings that we've seen over the last 30 years. And let's remember, we've traded at a discounted multiple for the majority of the last couple of years, even though interest rates are as low as they are. 3250 in the first half of the year. Entirely okay. possible, yep. Yeah. Julian, great to see you. Thank you. Thank Julian you. Emanuel, BTIG. I like how the Fed says don't call it QE. But it Stealth. feels like every single Stealth strategist QE. on the street is calling it QE. Well, it was the same equation was made when they were tightening. That was that was basically shrinking the balance sheet was equivalent to to uh, raising rates. So this is the equivalent to cutting rates, and that's why you have to be bullish the overall market. Yeah, I just want to say one thing really quickly. The market trades horribly, even at all time highs. When you consider that we are in a mid. Uh, we're mid-cycle rate cutting worst, worst cycle. You've ever we seen. have QE. No, I'm just saying it trades horribly year over year, up three and a half percent, given all the accommodation and all the potential catalysts that people like you see. Coming up, Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg set to testify on the Hill tomorrow. We'll tell you what to expect as the fate of the company's 737 Max planes hang in the balance. Much more fast money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg will be on Capitol Hill tomorrow to testify before Congress on the 737 MAX crashes. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the latest on this. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. Tomorrow will not be a good day for Dennis Mullenberg. He is going to get hammered over the course of about two hours of questioning in front of the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee. So the questions are going to touch on a wide variety of areas, but really the ones, the areas that people are going to be most focused on really comes down to three things. First of all, did Boeing engineers and did the culture at Boeing mean that they were pushing to rush the max to market? In other words, cutting corners. At the same time, 
The senators also want to find out if Boeing was misleading regulators, maybe not as a company officially, but were the staff members who were working with the regulators uh, for the FAA, did they mislead them? And finally, what will be the tenor and tone of the comments from Dennis Mullenberg? Will he show contrition? He's already released his opening testimony, his statement, if you will. And a lot of what we've seen in this opening statement is similar to what we've heard from Dennis Mullenberg as well as from Boeing in the past. One quote in particular, uh, Dennis Mullenberg says, you know, we understand the situation that's in front of us. And we understand that as a company, we need to change. And he says, we also know that we can and must do better. We have been challenged and changed by these accidents. We we're improving as a company because of them. We will hear that time and again from Dennis Mullenberg tomorrow. Remember, it is the one-year anniversary of the first 737 MAX crash. That was a Lion Air 737 MAX that crashed into the Java Sea off the coast of Indonesia. And guys, what's interesting about all of this is, yeah, there's great theater involved here, and we know that the senators are going to hammer Boeing. But is there anything that we'll hear tomorrow from Dennis Mullenberg which changes the viewpoint that many people have about this company when it comes to the max, because they've lost the moral high ground over the last year. As they've said time and again, we've done this, we've done this, and then other stories start to come out. Phil, are you getting any sense that anybody on the Hill is going to be pressing for his resignation? I bet you somebody says it. Yeah. I've, not, I've got no sense that anybody has said he shouldn't be CEO, but I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow some senator says, you know what, you've had two accidents, 346 people have died, why are you still running this company? If I don't hear that tomorrow, I will be surprised. Yep. Phil, thank you. Phil you LeBeau. Bet. I have a big day tomorrow for Boeing. Um, where, where do you stand on Boeing now? Well, because they haven't proven that Boeing's at fault here. So, I mean, they, you know, I, I think the companies... They have not proved that Boeing is at fault? That's right. Have people proved that Boeing is at fault with these deaths? I mean, is Do you it, think that the design contributed to the crashes? I, I think you have a case where there's a software fix that people are concerned whether it should have come in time or not. Maybe it should have, maybe it hasn't. Um, and, and it's obviously a horrible tragedy. I'm just saying that if Boeing was totally culpable, I think we'd be assessing this in a different way right now. Uh, has the credibility of the company, which at one point was as bullproof of an American company as there could be, been hit? It certainly has been. Um, but I think if you, if you look at where the company traded as a premium to its, its multiple... Um, I don't think you expect that in the short to near term. But what's interesting to me is that you've actually had them downgrade their 787 outlook for next year by a couple planes. They've not necessarily told you where the 737 is going to get turned on because they don't know when they're going to come back online. And the company's at 340. That, to me, is a pretty good sign. And I, I don't just do price as truth, but I think you have a case here where Boeing is actually uh, going to weather this storm. They have before. If Mullenberg resigns, does Boeing stock go up? Or down? Not right away. I mean, listen, he's been there his whole career, and I think sadly what he what he knew or didn't know or whatever, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, Tim, that QA and a lot of stuff that they were doing with the FAA, it's pretty clear that, that Boeing is going to bear a huge amount of responsibility for these two crashes, and it ends... Well, it doesn't actually end. Mullenberg's gone at some point, probably this year, and it doesn't end there. And then your point, your question, Mel, is whether the stock rallies. No, it doesn't rally there because the only person that, you know, they need to get somebody from outside the company to kind of redo this whole thing. They keep making, how many of these 737s are they making? They're not selling them yet. They have a huge PR problem here. So at the end of the day... No, if anything, it's a production cut that's a very significant issue for the company. And, and right now, you've got probably 50 modeled for the first quarter and at around 80 as we know it, that's if they come back online. So I think production cuts are a big deal. There's no question about it. But, but right now, um, I think the street has, has downgraded the stock dramatically. Let's, uh, Wells Fargo, right? 
we haven't seen a big move from Wells Fargo until uh, there was an outside CEO brought in. Mm -hmm. Let me remind you, John Stump resigned two days after he testified in front of Congress. And then Tim Sloan resigned four weeks. Was it four weeks? Two weeks after he testified in front of Congress. I mean, we're yeah, but there could be a lot that happens. There's still a in this lot. Story. There still could be a lot that happens. And, and I think what these guys are getting at, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what the cost is to Boeing. We don't know that. So, yeah, Mullenberg may resign. That's fine. But it's going to be a long time that this stock continues to trade in a rage until you get some clarity of, you know, is what's what's the liability that Boeing has here? And I don't think anybody is going to be able to get nobody knows that. But, but you do know it's a duopoly. And I think there's an innate bid there. So yeah. Yes, there's a lot of green to cover, a lot of headway. What? They've been here before. I mean, Not here. It's up, it's up 6%. So it's a, with fatal crashes. It's up 6%. They've been here with fatal crashes. Just watch. I'm not. 324. I do believe price is truth. Watch the recent low of 324. If it breaks that, then you get out of the position. Right, well, Boeing stock is down nearly 11% over the past month. Options market expressing, expressing some optimism ahead of tomorrow's hearing. So Mike is in San Francisco with some of these details. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, I would actually refer to it maybe as cautious optimism. So today we did see calls outpace puts by about two to one. That's not something we've been conventionally seeing in Boeing of late. It was the weekly calls, the 345s and the 350s that were most active. Actually, the 350s were number one, 345s were number two. 350s traded about 3,000 contracts. Those were trading about $1.60, so buyers of those calls are hoping that the stock gets a bounce above 350 by at least the $1.60 that they paid uh, after we see the CEO testify. But I would also point out, why is this a cautious uh, expression of optimism? Take a look at how much you're paying. $1.60, that's a small fraction of the current stock price, and it's very short in terms of how long these calls go till expiration. They end on Friday. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Cohen, San Francisco. For more Options Action, tune into our live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, the latest headlines from Alphabet's conference call, Don't Go Anywhere. Fast is back in two minutes. I know there are a lot of Fast Money fans out there who watch the show very religiously. But remember just last week, we were talking about a very bullish note put out by Fundstrat's Tom Lee about the home builders, which found that the home builders are in a seasonally strong period for the next six months between October 20th and April 22nd or so, um, and that this has worked out of the past nine out of ten years. Well, Chartmaster says he's seeing something very different in the charts. Let's get back to Carter at the Plasma for more. Carter. Well... Take a look at the following. That is that same high that the S&P and all global equities had. That was a Friday. It was the 26th of January. And what's remarkable, I'm going to draw a number here, this was $46.11. And on Friday, we got to $46.10. And we pivoted and we dropped hard, down a lot today. Before you can exceed a former high, you typically have to contend with it. That's why there's often multiple tops before you ultimately break out. But you almost never break out on the first approach. So could one draw the lines like this and say yes? But we've accomplished the price move on an initial basis, right back to that former high. So could you draw the lines this way? Sure you can. There's a, there's a, there's a terminology for this. It's called a double top. Now. Does it mean you go back to the lows? Nothing to do with that. But you do, in principle, have some form of a give back. And then I would point out that these little hash marks, every one of these red lines was yellow. It was an unfilled gap, and they've all been filled. And there are five unfilled gaps in this spurt higher over the past four or five months. Ultimately, I think we can fill some 
if not all of those. Uh, this is a great setup. You have a reference point, the prior high. You go short, and if it exceeds the high by 2-3%, walk away. But you know where you stand in relation to the prior high, and you also know what your price objective is, that you're going to come down into the low 40s. Were we to fill the, the lowest most gap, that would be about a 13% decline in home builders. And of course, it's rate driven. We know what's happening to utilities, and we know what in principle happens to home builders if rates rise. And rates uh, of late are on the rise. Carter, thank you. Good to see Thanks. you again. It was like well, a, bonus, a market. Yeah. bonus Carter, right? Um, but where do you, I mean, where would you stand? Tom Lee or Carter Braxton Worth? I traded. You said you said that it worked like a charm. I traded Tom Lee's call last year, and it did work like a charm. But I think his charting is really compelling. All depends on time horizon, right? No, it does. And and there were fits and starts last year. And I just think playing for a move back to that forty level makes total sense. One last point: last year, when the ITB sold off, peaked to trough, was down forty percent, doubled the S and P five hundred. It could get there quickly. I'm just saying to forty. I'm still long Lennar. I've been long for a while. It's up 54% year to date. I'm looking for a little higher than here, but I, I, I do feel as if rates are going higher and they're probably going to turn at some point. Rates are going to go higher. This trade is is faced with tremendous headwinds with rates. So it's been a tailwind. You're going to get out soon. So I'm thinking about if, if Lennar starts to fade mm-hmm. here again, I will get out of the trade. I, I agree. Actually, I mean, look at look at the moving rates. The 10 years back up to 185. Um, if you believe that we've hit that low in rates, it doesn't mean it's going to be dramatic in the short to medium term. The other thing I would be watching are, are, are labor numbers, payroll numbers, non-farm payroll on Friday. I mean, I think you have a case where it peaked labor. Those are the people buying the houses. Those are the ones making those mortgage payments. If any of this changes, the housing market is a different trajectory. Tom or Carter, not I want everybody. Up. I want everybody to get along. I, I think you can buy. I think you can buy them both, right? But I oh, think man, it, make you a get stand. This, this well, is fast I, money. So you as, get the as of today. I am short bonds, which means I think rates are going higher. So you get the pullback in, in ITB, and then you buy that pullback. Coming up, we'll bring you the very latest from Alphabet's conference call. Plus, take a look at the Kramer cam. Jim's getting a pulse on the consumer with a breakout on three key stocks in the space. He's got that and much more coming up at the top of the hour. We're live at the NASDAQ and Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Shares of Alphabet off the lows after its earnings results after the bell. Let's get to Josh Lipton, who is on the conference call. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, CFO Ruth poured out a call noting that top line came in above consensus, uh, driven, she says, by mobile search, YouTube cloud. We know EPS missed, though, um, way down by OPEX. Uh, Pour out talking in the quarter, including some of those uh, unusual items, which she called a noisy quarter. Take a listen. The increase in GNA year over year was primarily due to a $554 million charge from our previously announced legal settlement in France. Stock-based compensation totaled $2.6 billion. Headcount was up 6450 from the second quarter, and consistent with prior quarters, the majority of new hires were engineers and product managers. Now, of course, there's a company that's also spending to build out its cloud business. And you saw really um, analysts in the call trying to press CEO Sundar Pichai on that cloud business, get more color, a uh, backlog for that cloud business, the trajectory there. Uh, Pichai is saying uh, at this point, you know, they're going to provide that level of insight, in his words, periodically, uh, but suggesting that, in his opinion, momentum has been strong. He talked about partnerships with uh, Mayo Clinic and VMware. He was also asked about increasing regulatory scrutiny and whether that's impacting uh, his ability to innovate uh, 
uh, Pichai making the case that overall his products and services, in his words, reduce prices and expand choice. So in some areas, we're actually the new entrant. Uh, perhaps he was referring there to his cloud business where he knows he trails Amazon and Google, at least in cloud infrastructure. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you, Josh Lipton. For more reaction to the call, let's get back to Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Um, Gene, what do you think are the highlights of the call so far? Josh, a lot of them. I would also add that the YouTube spend is going to be accelerating YouTube TV. Not surprising given what Netflix is spending, $15 billion a year, Amazon at $5 billion, Apple at $3 billion. Uh, so add uh, Google to that mix. Also, this concept of ambient computing came up. And this is this idea of when you move throughout your day and have different devices and different services that you, you use, these they kind of fit seamlessly together. And I see kind of an undercard developing related to a battle between Apple and Google around this. Apple, I think, has the upper hand on privacy, which is an important aspect. But that was another piece that really uh, jumped out at me. And they also talked a lot about quantum computing and ultimately building services that uh, will will um, uh, quantum computer that will build services that will answer not just answer questions but help us get things done sounds very promising one last thing melissa that mm -hmm. josh said that this concept around regulatory environment and i think there's a phrase there that popped out at me that we're going to hear a lot over the next uh several uh months and this is the idea of expand choice i think that is the the kind of the foundational argument that google will use in this upcoming regulatory um, uh, 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 jungle that they're going to weed through. What's your grade on the quarter, Gene? Uh, B. Uh, this is a solid quarter. This is a company you want to own for five years, but there is no urgency to own more after tonight's print. Gene, great to see you. Thank you. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Um, the stock is down 2% so far in the after hours. What do you think happens? I think it's fine. I mean, I think the stock ran into the quarter. I don't think it was enough to break the stock out, and that may take some time, as Carter said. But the fundamental, I don't think the fundamental drivers were there for like a, the sort of breakout that you might expect. All right. Up next, final trades. Oh. It's a live look at trick-or-treaters at the White House. Oh, oh, fun, right? Yeah. I wonder what's in the basket. Are they full-size candy bars or minis? Who do you think he is? <laughs> They're big kids dressed up as the president and first lady. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. I still want to know what he's giving out. Tim. Tariffs. I think they're a little, I think they're a little early. Maybe I'm wrong. But where it's maybe not too early is to get into emerging markets. The EEM is finally breaking back uh, above those levels from last April. This is one of the places it should outperform if the market continues to run. BK. Not a huge fan of Halloween, but I am a huge fan of Alphabet. I think you buy this one for the breakout on the weakness. I think Guy's out because he's working on his costume. Nice. Uh, I think he was handing out government contracts. Um, uh, <laughs> ITB, I like Carter's call there, and I think you sell it, and maybe you look to buy it at 40. Steve. I know we've called for this growth into value, and it hasn't happened yet, but I'm still a believer in it. WRK West Rock, I'm still there. All right, that does it for us. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.